Hello, everybody. This is Sarah Longwell. I am here with my good friend, Ben Wittes, and we are talking about A French Village, episode 9 and 10. Thanks so much for being with us. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Uh, make sure to go give us a rating if you want to over on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, I will tell you, we are getting, I don't know if you know this, Ben, we're getting great ratings. Lots and lots of people uh, rating us. Totally five stars all across the board. Uh, the one thing we're getting dinged for, I may have mentioned, though, is our is our French pronunciation, which is apparently uh, poor. Well, I, I just want to say I have studied Spanish all through high school. I studied Russian all through college. I've studied Hebrew, uh, you know, in that way that uh, American Jewish kids grow up learning Hebrew. I've never studied French. I can pick my way through it when I have to because, you know, romance languages and all that. But uh, I don't pretend to speak French. And so if people uh, want good pronunciation in French, um, you know, uh, they shouldn't be coming to me. They apparently shouldn't be coming to you. And um, and so I'm kind of unapologetic about this. I I feel like... We are doing this show uh, for reasons very unconnected to language. We're, we've never held ourselves out as experts on the French language. It would be kind of laughable if we did. And so to everybody who's – it's mostly directed at you, I think. Um, but um, to everyone who's razzing Sarah about her – or me about our French pronunciation, uh, chill out, man. <laughs> well, you know, it's like our friend Mike Berkowitz like was hitting me on Twitter. Really thought that I was doing Barrio, which I, I think. Look, here's the thing about me and languages. So I managed to get through my language requirements by always taking uh, just the level one. So I managed. So you know, you had a language requirement. So I would take like Spanish 101, French 101, Latin 101, and so as a result, I can basically count uh, in each language. Um, and say, like, please, thank you, and where's the bathroom? Uh, but I can't pronounce anything. I never went any deeper. I was not good at languages. I had no facility for it. Um, and so I just uh, – it didn't occur to me when I started this podcast that people would have an expectation that I could manage any of the French pronunciations. Yeah, it's a totally unreasonable – look, I – learned after studying Spanish in high school, you know, and then never studying again, I learned a bit of Italian from reading and listening to operas, you know, reading opera librettos, uh, libretti. And, um, sure, and, that makes sense. Well, no, totally. you know, that's Normal. a totally, like, totally reasonable way to learn Hobby, Italian. Sure. But it, of course, teaches you a very odd form of Italian, right? This highly stylized. And so... Like if you ask me to say in Italian, uh, help me, help me, Satan, to achieve my ends, I I'm your guy for that. <laughs> but um, if you ask me to say, could you please pass the salt, I'm lost, right? I mean, there there there's, there's sort of like, um, you know, we use languages for the things we use them for, not for... Uh, for other things, you know, help me, help me, Satan, to achieve my ends. I can even sing it to you. Um, but I'm not going to be able to give you directions to the supermarket. <laughs> which 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 opera is that? Uh, it is the uh, beginning of the second act of Otello by, um, by Verdi. Oh. 
The Iago sings mm-hmm. Ayuta Ayuta Satana il mio cimento. You know, it's which great. is which That's is excellent. great. It's a really useful phrase if you're an evil mastermind like say Heinrich. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I would just like to say I've seen exactly one opera, and it was when I was in the Czech Republic, which means that it was in Italian with Czech, with Czech subtitles. subtitles. Yeah, so I was quite bored at uh, Don Giovanni. Um, oh, but anyway, you just, anyway, just like pierced my heart because <laughs> um, Don Giovanni is the greatest opera yeah. ever written. I think what we've all discovered through this is that I'm more of a um, television person and that some of these more elevated forms of things just might not be my bag anyway people just leave sarah alone (laughs) about the pronunciation now uh, a a key word on pronunciation of french names because there is an issue that we raised uh that um we asked for the audience's help on and amidst the razzing um one of you actually came through and so, first of all, shout out to my friend, Eve Goumont, uh, who sent me a text answering the question about where the name De Cavern comes from, which is that uh, we were right and wrong, right that it is a, a, a distinctive name that uh, says something about where the person is from, wrong that it is not French or sort of wrong. Because actually, De Caverne, uh, Eve tells me, is a Breton name. Breton, of course, being uh, a Brittany being a part of France, um, but a part of France that has its own native language, which is actually Celtic in, in uh, uh, part of the Celtic language family, not part of the Romance language family. And so the reason the name seems odd is not as I hypothesize that it's actually Dutch and that it reflects immigration, but that it's closer to, you know, like in origin, it's a Frenchization or Frank, uh, Francization of a Welsh-like name. Um, uh, Breton is very close to Welsh and Cornish. Um, and so uh, I've helpfully also included uh, an audio clip with the, in fact, correct pronunciation of his name, which sounds like this. Henri de Kerverne, de Kerverne. And I see since listening to that, Ben, you you have mastered the pronunciation. I listened to it several times, and I'm going to keep trying to say de Kerverne, and it's going to be closer at least. The Hebrew R and the French R are essentially the same, that back of the throat R rather than the front of the mouth R that we yeah, use I don't in English. Have it. I don't and have it. so, you know, if you can say uh if you grew up with 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 a Hebrew R, you're uh you're gonna be okay with the French R. Yeah. Um okay. Well, I've got the uh, central Pennsylvania R and it's the only <laughs> R in my arsenal. <laughs> arsenal. Okay. I see what you did there. <laughs> See, I'm a real wizard with the English language. Yeah, no, no, it, that um, was good. It was well done, <laughs> impromptu. Um, I also just want to say to people who are razzing any of us about the ums, uh, you try improvising a podcast for an hour. Go for it. 
uh, send me the results and see how much filler words you use before you send a note about that. Cheerio. <laughs> All right. You're, don't worry. You can send us. It's fine. You can send us criticism. It's cool. We take it. We clearly take it super well. <laughs> All right. Now that we've done eight minutes on uh, on on the criticism, let's jump into this episode. I'm super excited to talk to you about these two because. Yeah, because they start killing it, Jews in these episodes. It's it's uh, it, it, it's getting ugly. Shit's getting real in Villeneuve. That is not what I was thinking. I was thinking <laughs> that it is the episode, uh, it's not the first one, it's the second one, but we can still sort of open with this, which is that your hypothesis about Schwartz is finally getting tested. Um, and so I'm really excited to talk about that with you and see what your interpretation is. In fact, we can just start there. What is your interpretation of the way that they they do exactly what you thought, right? Which is that it, it is now a question as to whether or not he's Jewish. He's he's dining with with Helmut, uh, his new friend, the German. Um, the I guess he's the uh, commander of the, the commanding town. officer. Yeah. And and they've made they've made pals. Um, they're sharing some wine. Uh, but their evening is interrupted when somebody has graffitied on some of the the logs or the the mill wood. Um, I believe what it, the the quote was they called him a dirty Jew or something, but it's black graffiti. Nobody sees who did it, but it raises the question of is Schwartz actually Jewish and hiding it some way? Right. So first of all, there are a number of elements of about this, and I don't know the. French anti-Semitic history well enough to know whether they're realistic vis-a-vis France. They are certainly realistic vis-a-vis Germany. Um, And so I assume the writers here are getting this right as to France. Look, Jews lived in these countries uh, since, you know, the early Middle Ages. And... uh, and they are both isolated and integrated into these societies in ways that make it extremely difficult. If you declare an anti-Semitic policy, you have to figure out who is a Jew. One way you do that is through names. Um, and uh, Schwarz is an interesting name as it, of course, I think it means black in German, um, but um, I'm not sure of that. Somebody should check that. Um, but um, it it's it's a not necessarily a Jewish name in Germany, but in France, you know, to have a German name like Schwarz is a is a marker that indicates probably there's some you, you've got some amount of jew jewish heritage or maybe german heritage but there's something unusual about it uh and it's certainly a name that many jews have had over the generations um and so as it did for me you have a a business owner or a runner a guy who runs a business owner named schwarz who's uh, it raises the question, okay, is this somebody who's either Jewish and a convert or somebody who is whose ancestry is Jewish? Now, this episode answers that question, uh, sort of. So it answers the question that he is not a convert himself. Uh, he 
you know, he just says, I'm not Jewish. Um, and his wife, you know, they don't seem to have the deep, dark secret that he's, um, that he's, uh, uh, once was Jewish, although there yeah, is Janine's a... Janine's response is like, well, your name does sound a little Jewish. Right. Well, it does sound a yeah. little Jewish. It's not dispositive, <laughs> right. but it's but it's kind of But it's probative. not like she's saying, are you secretly Jewish? It's not right. like she doesn't know or that they they're, that they're or they're both keeping the secret. It's just sort of a normal conversation. So the second thing that is totally realistic and real is that the they had all kinds of, pardon me, bullshit, scientific garbage, uh, uh, phrenology systems that were supposed to identify different races. And, you know, you uh, some people uh, could prove their lineage down through a number, a lot of generations and didn't, therefore didn't have to go through this. But if you were German and somebody uh, raised a question about whether you were Jewish, uh, there were these kind of crazy ways that you uh, might go through to verify um, and obtain what is was called in in the Reich anyway a certificate of Aryan purity, which was basically a passport that said you're not uh, uh, um, Jewish. Remember that the Germans thought of Judaism as a race, not as a religion, and so converting didn't really help you. It's they were they were pretty different from the Church in that regard. Who you know the history of Church anti-Semitism was you cease to be a Jew when you convert and ac accept. Christ, there is no analog to that in in Nazism, and so the there was a lot of weight put on these. Could you prove that you were not a Jew? Questions, and uh, Schwartz gets wrapped up in that. Ends up going to see a doctor who one of these phrenologists who's measuring his skull and. Uh, and here is where the story gets a little bit murky, um, because the doctor measures his head and he tolerates that, but then he suddenly cuts the examination short. And uh, that is, it's left unclear whether that's because he doesn't want to be uh, examined for circumcision, or whether it's just that he's offended by the examination at all um and so I, I thought they but i thought i actually thought they they did the circumcision check because there's this cop this 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 uh, the scene the doctor is talking the whole time in this way that is like incredibly racist i mean like obviously everything is sort of steeped in, in racism but this is like a very he's no, like walking the, him through the jew can't can't hide his large upper lip kind of thing. that's right. right no it's 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 like and so it seemed like actually he got through like when he they first talked about him seeing the doctor, it became, it was, to me, it seemed a familiar sort of trope just from lots of movies that I've seen about, and I assumed it was about circumcision. And so when you actually get to the doctor, um, he's doing all kinds of other things and talking through how, like, different races can evade these, you know, tried and true tactics of identification based the on Turkish, certain, The Turkish Jews right. are, the, are the hardest to, to, to identify. So I actually thought he got through the circumcision and he never seemed concerned, right? That's one of the elements of this whole thing that's interesting. He never seems concerned about – like I would assume 
that were he circumcised, he wouldn't go to the doctor, period. Like, it is better to just not start the process at all than to engage in it and walk out. It actually seemed like the the the, the treating him as uh, something to be, like, evaluated in that way, like, gets to be too much for him. Like, the kind of poking, prodding, whatever, he just seems to lose his patience with it. But it does then leave the question just slightly open as to why he doesn't sort of, he's gone this far, why not take the opportunity to have somebody sort of make the, give him the the card or whatever you'd get for passing this particular medical exam. Right. So whether I, I, I had missed that he had been, uh, missed the uh, circumcision examination if it happened. But I, I do agree with you that the implication, if he were circumcised, he probably wouldn't have gone to the exam in the first place. Um, and it does seem like he just got offended by the whole thing. And of course, Schwartz is also showing an interesting side of himself in other ways in this period, which is that he is uh, m much less apt than his wife to fire their Jewish maid because she's Jewish. Um, and he does seem to be uh, sympathetic to the plight of uh, Jews who are fleeing. Who um, And so he actually seems to be a bit more of a mensch than, than some of the people around him. Uh, and maybe that's partly because he identifies with them, at least in the sense that he is being denounced. Um, or maybe it's just because he's, you know, a little bit of a better person than his wife. Um, but he... Uh, and for one reason or another, gets offended in the middle of this examination and stalks off. And then this gives rise to the the second thing, major event, which is that the uh, the officer of the Aryanization office shows up basically to confiscate his property, uh, the sawmill. Uh, uh, this is also totally realistic. Uh, um, I, I, again, the details of how Vichy did this, I don't pretend to know. I can sort of look it up for next week. But the, uh, you know, the Nazis, everywhere they went, dispossessed Jews of their property. And there was a huge, uh, which was, by the way, part of a much larger dispossession. I mean, the amount of art that was stolen from France during the occupation uh, the amount of looting uh, at a very high level uh, was amazing. But, you know, getting a lot of people in occupied countries used the Nazi occupation to seize property from Jewish families and Jewish neighbors. And there are still fights going on to this day uh, about some of the properties in question, particularly art properties. But um uh, so, you know, in general, when when the Nazis came into a territory, uh, they, you know, dispossession was one of the first things they did. And uh, allied or, or puppet governments often facilitated and helped that. And that process was called property Aryanization. Um, and so here you have this weird wrinkle where it is not clear that the guy is Jewish at all. 
um, which of course that becomes a definitional issue. If you're going to discriminate against Jews, you got to figure out who the Jews are, and that's not always obvious. Um, and secondly, of course, that he's rescued by the Wehrmacht, um, the the German army, uh, which was uh, his his new friend Helmut von Ritter, uh, the uh, commanding officer, who does not seem to like Jews, but uh, does have business to attend to and needs his friend in the sawmill and has a uh, has business to attend to with him and scares off the uh, French... Caberni. Yeah, Aryanization guy with a lot of points that are all true, by the way, about are you, you know, Schwarz is a common name in Germany. Are you suggesting my cousin's name Schwarz are Jewish? Are you suggesting I have Jewish cousins? And completely intimidates this uh, Vichy official who flees and uh, now, of course, whether he's in fact Jewish in origin or not, Schwarz owes a big, big debt to the German army who just saved his sawmill. Yeah. And just a quick note on that interaction, um, because we are seeing a lot out of Schwartz um, in these episodes that are interesting and are the beginnings of kind of how what is happening is impacting him and sort of his true nature coming out. And he is just the way he storms out of the doctor's office. The Aryanization guy would presumably have a tremendous amount of power over him. And rather than backing down, he like fights him, like pushes him, whatever, gets a gun pulled on him. Um, and it's not until, uh, you know, the Germans show up and resolve it. But he is, uh, he is in no way, like he is it just, it is clear that this, this person that you've been watching who has been mostly kind of a Lothario, a complicit businessman who seems always to go along to get along is doing – has a little bit more backbone than you might have suspected initially, which is interesting. Yeah, and there's a, a very – I mean I do think the the who is a Jew point uh, is an interesting one here because this is a guy who, you know, unlike uh, uh, – uh, Madame Morhange, uh, you know, is is self-consciously an insider, right? He is, and he clearly has some some anxiety, or his wife has some anxiety that he may have Jewish ancestry. But at the end of the day, he is somebody who thinks of himself as a you know red-blooded French Catholic. And um, and is actually offended uh, at the suggestion that he might be a Jew, um, and his I think his reaction to the Aryanization guy is partly a reflection of that offense, and partly you know uh, he is also um, a uh, you know a lot of people like him got killed in the Holocaust. Uh, there's a a wonderful passage in uh, Primo Levi, the Italian um, writer who was a survivor of Auschwitz, describes the day that the they brought in for gassing all the nuns, uh, and these were nuns in habits who were you know had one Jewish ancestor, you know one one Jewish grandparent or something, and you know from the Nazis' point of view they were Jews, and from of course their point of view. They were 
you know, not just not Jews, they were, you know, like married to Christ. Yes, exactly. Um, (laughs) And, you know, these are the Nazi racial logic was not a does not map on to anything that we think of. And Vichy essentially adopted it. It doesn't map on to anything that we think of as making a lot of sense or or but they really did feel it. They believed it. So I want to go back, though, to, to episode nine. Um, I want to get into more of, of what happened because uh, the the Schwartz um, is he or is he not question is is wrapped into a bunch of other plot points. But but I, I want to go back to, to episode nine um, and talk about a couple things that were really interesting. So it kicks off with the German soldiers just sort of forcibly entering the classroom where uh, Principal Berio is, um, you know, being his jovial self with the kids teaching um and they come in and they start you know tearing the classroom apart and uh, uh pull out a a rifle which um you learn as a capital offense to have uh, a gun on you if you are a, ger- a french citizen um and so they find this sort of disassembled rifle and it 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 sets off this 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 plot point of Barriott is arrested He's taken to jail. Uh, Lucien is the person who seems to be resp- the only person he knows. He's not from there. He's only been there for a, a short period of time. And so she now has to go to the jail and he's trying to say, can you find me a lawyer? Um, she basically runs all over town trying to help him out. Uh, nobody seems to be interested in helping her until she gets to uh, Monsieur Le Maire, da- uh, Daniel, uh, who basically calls in a favor uh, also to the commander um and uh they're able to go over and meet with him uh and at like you know five o'clock in the afternoon this guy's always eating or drinking helmet is um and they he basically says you're gonna have to go see uh heinrich and upon watching this the second time i made i connected something i had not connected in the first place at least i'm pretty sure i did you can tell me if i'm wrong but the german commander says you know, I can't really call him. He doesn't like me. He doesn't like institutional uh, Germans. And then they they make a couple other suggestions. And he says, no, he's head of the SD. They don't like anybody. Um, but maybe she can go talk to him. And it, it occurred to me for the first time because the the other thing that is happening here is that Marchetti is staking out Esserts looking for uh, the the whoever is passing the notes and he is now responsible to Heinrich. He is reporting to Heinrich and Heinrich is upset that he hasn't made, um, you know, any progress as he's just riding the bus back and forth looking, looking for clues. Um, and so, uh, Marchetti is, uh, you see, you see Heinrich kind of leaning, um, on Marchetti and, and so the whole thing kind of centers around, uh, Heinrich and what what becomes clear to me about the SD is that he is an intelligence officer like the conversations that he Marchetti suggests something to Heinrich about how they can figure out who the spy is or like what's going on by like making something up and and Heinrich immediately identifies it as an intelligence move and so it occurred to me that the SD is actually it's the Nazi um, intelligence arm which meant intelligence also means like 
the ones that will torture you for information, uh, which also becomes clear in this episode. So do I have that right, that the SD is different from sort of the regular German military in that it is extremely Nazified and, and particularly cruel? Okay, so you think our French pronunciation is bad. Wait till we get into German pronunciation. The answer is yes, you are correct, uh, but it's worse than that. Um, so the SD is the Sicherheitsdienst, uh, and apologies to German speakers, uh, because I don't pretend to speak German either. And the SD is the intelligence arm of the SS. Now, what is the SS relative to the institutional German military? Well, the institutional German military is, you know, the same army that fought World War One, right? It's not as it, it has been Nazified. But it's also, uh, you know, has an institutional culture that's larger than and older than Nazism. Uh, of course, the military was the last refuge of the anti-Nazi, like the in, as late as 1944, the military tries to overthrow Hitler, right? In the uh, in the um, uh, the tries to stage a coup and tries to assassinate him, or elements of the military do. So the the institutional German military think of it as the sort of traditional Prussian officer corps that goes back into you know the uh, uh, you know well back into the nineteenth century as a kind of culture. Um, the SS of which the SD is. The as you point out is the is the intelligence arm is the uh, the the party the Nazi party's uh, sort of private army um, and it was run it was a wholly Nazified I mean it it was created by the Nazi party as a as a kind of military wing of the party. Uh, and it was kind of used as the elite um, uh, sort of stormtroopers of the of the, the the Reich, but it was very personally a you know a creature of the party, not of the state, um, in somewhat the same way that the you know the KGB was a party organ, right? Uh, this is these totalitarian societies were very much in dialogue with each other in how they organized things. Um, so the uh, the SD, and this is portrayed quite accurately. So the, the military guy, he's just a German military officer, right? Which is not to say that he doesn't have, you know, um, uh, um, you know, regalia, Nazi regalia, but he doesn't have a giant picture of Hitler behind his desk either, right? And he's he's a uh and he's very comfortable interacting with, you know, French people on a not an equal basis, because he's the occupying guy, but he's not friendly. Uh, like a friendly he's a reasonably basis. friendly. He's not terrorizing them when he doesn't have to. Um the SS people, um, you know, these were the people who ran the death camps. These are the people who, you know, killed three million Poles. Um, you know, there's a there's a uh, this was a group of people who were um, 
selected for a kind of sadism and, you know, fanatical devotion to the party and to, and who were the sort of, uh, you know, vanguard of its racial theories. And so, you know, here you have this guy, Heinrich, and of course, uh, the head of the SS was Heinrich Himmler. So I, I actually don't think his the choice of name here is entirely an accident. Um, um, and they um, uh, they were, you know, they're much more interested in the Nazi elements and less interested in the simple military elements. So yeah, um, they are accurately portraying that that tension that the army, you know, feels like feels like these are the sort of political overlords uh, that the institutional army kind of chafes at a little bit. Um, but I think, you know, what the other thing that's going on here is that we're seeing now Heinrich involved in a lot of different things. So on the one hand, he's looking into this uh, this spy ring and gets very close in episode nine to catching Marie uh, through through his extortion, uh, uh, through his extortee, uh, Marchetti. But he also extorts uh, 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 Lucien, who's trying to save uh, Berio's life into, uh, you know, getting raped. Um, which, you know, so his, we are sort of learning and he, and she does save Barrio by, uh, allowing, allowing him to have his way. Uh, and, um, and Barrio gets out. Um, and so I think what, you know, between the two episodes, what you've learned about Heinrich is that he is, essentially operating with respect to French people through the mechanism of extortion, that that's his, you know, and blackmail, that's his, uh, that's his mode of exerting power over them. And also that he is uh, cruel in a way that uh, we have seen the cruelty exerting itself in broad policy uh, up until this point and, you know, people being shot, but he is he is cruel in that deepest sense where uh, you see him sort of burning when they when they get the bus driver in for questioning. Um, you know, he's, he's burning him with cigarettes. Um, and I, I actually, it's interesting, I wondered about this um, uh, upon second watching because actually the first time I watched the scene with Lucienne, uh, which is, uh, you know, one of those really like gross, hard to watch type things. I will say it didn't, I didn't think, um, that they had sex, uh, slash it's not had sex, but, but that he raped her. Cause they don't show that to you. They just show, um, sort of the introduction to a molestation. And I, they, they show that they, he, he 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 got what he wanted from her, where whatever it was. Because Barrio gets released. That's right. Um, I did wonder about it upon the second watch. If the show is sparing the viewer the the broader details, or if um, what he did, what because they they there's a lot in these episodes about him with prostitutes. Like it, you know, he has that that. Um, 
he does this thing where Marchetti has clearly been allowed into his office while he still has a prostitute uh, or a um, uh, sex worker uh, in in there with him. And it's one of those, like, gross, subtle power plays that you see um, sometimes, like, men doing to show that they're powerful, forcing you to watch them in sort of an intimate, intimate ways. Um, and so I can't tell if... If he was doing like what he did, because it's it's all an exertion of uh, it's it's all they're all these kind of mind game power play things to make sure that people understand that he's in charge and they're subservient. Um, and he is doing it to Lucienne. He's doing it to Marchetti um, in in this. Now, one of the things that I was interested in, though, in the scene where we see um, Heinrich torturing this bus driver, you know, Marchetti is eager to please Heinrich. Uh, because he is being extorted, yes. But we also know enough about Marchetti to to think that he could, you know, we've heard him talk about co- the coercive powers of the police before. This is not the kind of thing you would think Marchetti would do, that he would take it this far. But do you think, they show him watching Heinrich do it. Do you think he is thrilled by it? Or do you think he is um, horrified by it? It's difficult to tell on his face. McKinney is a is is careful in life to not show on his face horror um when it gets in the way of what he needs to for self-preservation or advancement and you know he's aware that Heinrich has him over a barrel uh he can end his career maybe worse and He's fully invested in what Heinrich is trying to do and is, I I don't think, is morally appalled by what's happening. I think he's uh, keen to make sure that Heinrich gets enough of what he wants so that Marchetti is off the hook. I think that I think that's his uh, and I'm sure if you grilled him, he would say, oh, yes, it's terrible that they would do that. But remember, we've seen him punch suspects. We've seen him kick suspects in the ribs when they're down, including Heinrich himself, uh, when he thought he was a French uh, black marketeer. And so this is not somebody who is morally opposed to the use of violence in an interrogation. Yeah, I agree with that. I think. I... And by the way, I would much rather have a cigarette put out on my hand than I would to be kicked hard in the ribs while lying on the street. Oh, what an interesting thing to have. Uh, I have a preference in that regard. Thought. Yeah, to have a preference there. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I think that Marchetti, uh, my read on his face is that that it is he it, he is learning a new tactic, and I think we'll just the the. the I, I guess I knew Heinrich was an intelligence officer, but I couldn't I hadn't didn't really put it together in quite the way that they do have a a bit of a kinship uh, between Marchetti and Heinrich in the sense that they both are intelligence officers and seem to like kind of understand one another. Um, and Marchetti is deeply invested um, for his but for his own reasons, but it does seem to go beyond that in riding the bus back and forth, figuring out who the spy is, like being looking forward to catching them. And then I just want to talk briefly about the scene where he thinks he's got his his mark uh, when Marie shows up. So they set a trap, right? As intelligence officers might do, they set a trap. He tells 
um, Dick Hiverne, uh that uh, there's, you know, someone's going to be arrested or something. Uh, but they set up some plot and they spread it around and it, it Caverne ends up sending an emergency message. Bus driver delivers it. Marchetti's watching for it. Uh, and Marie hears her three beeps and shows up to retrieve it. And this is the part that I just really want to flag as stupid. Um, I have, I have, I occasionally get very annoyed at certain plot points. Uh, this is especially when a show is really, really smart and tightly done. And then it does things like they're hiding this in the urinal, the male urinal at the center of this little part of town, right? The town center. And so like men go back there to use the urinal. Why you would pick that as the spot when your female farm woman has to come down and, like, sneak into the – like, it's the least – pick a – either have a dude who goes back there because he it, he would go back there plausibly to relieve himself or don't have it be – or have it be somewhere else where she could plausibly go without it being obvious that she's going to a place that she's not supposed to go. She is only saved because her, her – because Schwartz, you know, shows up um, – and and distracts her with a with a love confession. Otherwise, Marchetti's got her. Yeah. So, uh, of course, you're right. The reason in the show that they do it that way is that that's how the where the previous courier would pick up the stuff who was male, and the previous courier is killed, uh, and so. Uh, they're just using the same tradecraft that they did in given the prior personnel. But you're quite right that somebody as clever uh, as uh, the police chief who puts this ring, organizes this ring, and his friend Albert, um, the once you have a woman as this particular link in the chain, you probably move the the safe drop from the urinal to. Uh, uh, somewhere else. Um, so the I think the this spy ring is a particularly interesting thread, um, and it runs from this from this episode into the next episode, where the spy ring becomes a Jewish refugee ring for uh, a brief. You know, there, there's a family of refugees. They are trying to get over the river and they essentially deploy uh, this this information ring to try to uh, help this family. And then uh, as well, Schwartz has made Sarah, whom his wife has dismissed. And um, so this is uh, as a result of this, Marie has to read her husband into the uh, uh, issue. And her husband uh, then finds out that she's carrying on with Schwartz and um, uh, responds when he's supposed to be escorting these, uh, these, uh, uh, these people across the river and he abandons them and they all get caught and one of them gets killed. And so uh, I think there's a really interesting relationship here developing between the the spy ring, the save Jews ring, and the sort of general resistance, uh, which you're now starting to see develop. And you're also seeing the fact that it's splitting families, right? So Schwartz's wife is responsible for creating Sarah's plight by she dismisses the maid and the maid is Jewish and now is in a 
pickle that Schwartz tries to link her to the ring, uh, to to this group of Jews who's fleeing to try to get her across the line. Uh, and it also splits Marie and her husband, who um, the husband is sufficiently bitter about Marie's affair that he's willing to get a bunch of people killed over it. Um, and so you also see them starting to take risks. Uh, Marie in episode nine comes very, very close to getting caught, although she doesn't know it. Um, and, um, and these very sort of fateful questions of who you can and can't trust and who's going to give you up on purpose or by accident, uh, very much pushed to the fore in, in these pair of episodes. Yeah, so the, the 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 taking on the risk to me is very interesting and I think is the centerpiece of a lot of this this episode, right? Because uh if if the show is in sort of big picture in my mind this like meditation on levels of complicity, um then the sort of the people who are on the spectrum where they say I don't have to I don't have to do anything for people, right? So this Mrs. Morehange begins this uh, by meeting this family, this Jewish family on the street. It's a husband and wife with two children, a, husband, a daughter and a son. And, and, and critically, these people are visibly Jewish. The husband has a beard. Um, he's, um, these are, and she actually says it about them, they can't pass. Um, right. So they're, they're, they don't, don't think of them as looking like ultra-Orthodox Jews, but think of them as, as, looking like somebody who you'd walk down the street and kind of know just based on dress and and uh and social presentation that they're Jews. So so she brings them into her home like says like got to get them off the street. And so uh her boyfriend de Cavern show, comes comes home and he's like mad at first that they're there because now these people are his problem, but you also see that he intends to like take this problem on. And uh, and then he goes to Marie, who he has already roped into taking on his problems, uh, and she as well makes it her problem. And this is at great risk to all of them. And it's an interesting it's an interesting thread throughout the show. I think a little bit where everybody would prefer, uh, and and you hear that there's that argument that Marie has with Daniel earlier on, where there's this sense of like, don't make these things my problem. But there's a dividing line, I think, between people who, when something could be made their problem, either choose to take it on and do something about it, and those who do not. Um, and to me, it is a it is a moral dividing line. And so Marie immediately sort of assumes both the risk and the responsibility for these people. But the interesting, one of the really interesting sort of personal dynamics at play is that when she goes to her husband, who, because of his role in the black market, knows how to cross over... She she is sweet and warm to him to the first time that we have seen it all. Like th they have like a warm exchange, and she asks him if he'll do this for her, uh, which it seems that it is because she has asked him that he is willing to do it. But he is willing. There's a part of me that watches her and wonders. She is a very aware of how dangerous it is. Is it for her a bit of a? This is a cynical thought, but a bit of a win-win where she is not exactly overly concerned with the safety of her husband. She wants this family to be okay. She wants him to take them across. Uh, but 
there's also just seems like there's just the slightest element of if something happened to Lorraine, she wouldn't be that upset about it. So I have a lot of thoughts about Lorraine, and I agree with you that Marie is, I don't think she's trying to get him killed, but she's, you know, but I do think she's, she she doesn't contemplate that eventuality or possibility with total dread. Um, and she never imagines that he will abandon the family and that the risk will be borne by them rather than by him. And that appalls her when she realizes it. And I don't think she's consciously trying to get him killed. She's just not that concerned about his safety. And by the way, he is taking these risks on a regular basis for money anyway. So, you know, it's not the uh, the craziest thing to say, hey, if he's willing to do it to make a buck, why shouldn't he be willing to do it to make to to help this family? Um, my reaction to Lorraine, Laurent, um, was a slightly different one, which was this was the first part of the show where I really reacted to it as as a, a great metaphor for the modern era in America with Trump. And the reason is that Lorraine, when he is, uh, realizes that she's been cheating on him with Schwartz, he abandons the family. And the petty, comparatively petty, I don't mean to say, you know, betrayal and adultery is a petty matter, but compared to the lives of five people, innocent people, it's pretty small. And he is willing to let them die. And one of them dies in the short term and the others in the hands of the Vichy government. Their, their prospects are not good, whether they eventually make it or not, um, to spite her because she cheated on him. And that strikes me as a gorgeous metaphor for the people who out of you know, their peak at the never Trump conservatives or their peak at the left um, are willing to apologize for anything or tolerate anything. It's obviously not a um, but it's it's this, you know, getting the moral stakes in different choices just cosmically wrong um, that I obviously, you know, Nazi comparisons are all, almost always bad. But just like the husband who is willing to let five people die to spite his wife for cheating on him reminds me a lot of the Federalist. Um, you know, it's, it's just like, um, you know, because you, Sarah Longwell, ran an ad against so-and-so um, and that was mean, um, I will support a coup. Um, yeah. Right. There's a lot of that. And I think Lorraine is a Lorraine is a, it's just a really good. It captivates that human inability to. To figure it to prioritize hierarchies of importance. That's right. That's right. I always talk about it as a threat assessment, like your threat assessments just off if you can be like, well, um, you know, 
but but Joe Biden is borrowing all this money and I, you know, and 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 that is your uh, like or, or I don't they might they might raise taxes. Uh, so I have to support the guy who called for the coup. Right. Like, there, that, there are Nazis in town and they're killing people. But you cheated on me. So I'm going to help them. And I, I think it's really it's really human. It's really batshit crazy. And it's really realistic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- well, it, they're, they're, the, the comparisons, I think, to modern politics are going to get even more on the nose than that. But I, I think it's an, uh, I think it's an, uh, a worthy contemplation um, of, of people. So, yeah, so he abandons this family um, in the woods and the, the little boy is shot. Uh, and we find this out because they are being brought into the station. You see one is on a body, like on a stretcher, you know, in a, in a body bag. And... Um, the mother, you can see the mother, father, and the the, the little girl. And then Sarah, who Schwartz sees, um, because he is also there. Uh, what's he doing there? Uh, oh, he's trying to, oh, he's trying to see the commander about his, his, uh, his being accused of being Jewish. And so he sees Sarah get brought in. And, and we should just quickly take a moment and talk about what happens here to Sarah, why she's on the lam and why she was fired. Uh, which is that Janine accuses her of having stolen the ration coupons, um, which uh, you see in a different scene that Gustav and the Schwartz's son, uh, Marcel, I think, I, I forget, I'm not positive about his name, um, that they took them for like a game. They were playing a game with them and had taken them out of the box. Uh, and so Janine, and this is another one where it's sort of a similar level of indifference um where you know one of the reasons that it seems like not only is schwartz sort of generally fond of sarah or thinks that she's a nice person sees no reason to punish her or lash out at her um but he also seems to understand the threat that she is under that it is important for sarah to have her job with them because it it provides her a mortal level of protection that janine seems perfectly pleased to cast her out on the street knowing the threat that she will face um, as somebody who is an unregistered Jew, and not only that, goes to the trouble when Sarah is picked up on the street to make sure the police know that she stole um, those ration coupons, which of course she didn't, but but Janine thinks that she did. And so Janine is sort of, because of her own just sort of petty uh, issues with Sarah, uh, willing to put her in a place where she knows full well it could lead to Sarah being put in jail, being deported, uh, killed. Yeah, and- so, but, but it's worse than that because she is contemplating firing Sarah the previous episode simply for being Jewish because it's, it's not a good look for them to have a Jewish maid. And so she is, she's been gunning for Sarah uh, for a number of episodes uh, she doesn't like her manner. She doesn't like her work ethic. She's she's like picking nits with everything she does. And then when she finds the ration coupons missing, that is a great pretext to fire Sarah. And she does it with her when her husband is not home and kind of announces it to him sort of gleefully. Um, and to... Schwartz's credit, he stands up for her, says, I'm very upset with you about this. Um, 
And so I, I think, you know, this is the most, this last, this pair of episodes is by far the most attractive we've seen Schwartz at. Um, and, um, and you're left with a genuine concern for Sarah's well-being. She's been arrested. She's, you know, uh, and I, I think it's one of the big questions that we have hanging over us is what happens to her at this point. Yeah, so I just want to hit a couple other plot points. So one of the things that is the reason Sarah gets to um, just as a, another sort of point about people who are kind of falling along the spectrum of are they helping, are they hurting, or are they trying to stay neutral? Uh, De Cavern is also, you know, she goes to see him uh, or, or, or he takes her out of the questioning by another police officer and he basically gets her. Um, he knows that the that that Murray's husband is taking this family across, and so he gets her added to that particular caravan um, to try to help her get out. And one of the things she says during that conversation is that she's been. He kind of asks her if she has family, uh, and she says, "Well, I've been my mail to my parents who are in Marseille has has been being returned for the last couple of months, and it's this thing that they kind of just pass over quickly." But that is a, um, I thought was kind of gut wrenching, in the idea that this is this young woman who's who's gone to take you know strike out in her fortunes and you know has been working with this family hasn't seen her parents for months and is like kind of realizing who knows where they are right like this is how you just you know she's sending letters and they're just coming back and are they dead have they been moved somewhere you don't know but it you you know as the viewer that. Nothing good is happening here. So uh, this is another thing I have to look up. Um, but uh, there was a famous roundup of Jews in Marseille in, uh, I believe it was 1943, uh, which accounted for a large number of uh, Jewish uh, deportations and ultimately deaths. Um, I think that is still two years out. Um, but, um, uh, it, the Jews of Marseille did not fare all that well in the Holocaust. And so there's a kind of reference to, uh, again, I think the Marseille roundup is still a couple years from happening, but she's not in touch with her family. You know, you can't just text and see where they are. It's not clear what's happened to them. And we do know that, you know, Marseille was not the best place to be in the world in this period of time if you were Jewish. So that's a kind of background fact. Yeah, you know, and and one other thing I'll say just uh, as a as a bit of I meant to say this when you were talking about the um how it relates to the current political time. Just the other thing is obviously there's so much border crossing, right? Like just in terms of it is it, there it is and it be just because of the nature of the time, right? There's there's a lot of talk of crossing the border where the town is situated is near the border, and so it is a place where lots of people cross. And so um, the the idea of people fleeing persecution uh, and or you know horrible circumstances uh, and trying to get to a safer place and people either helping them or hunting them, or whatever that is a uh, what to do with them 
is like an is a, is a comp it's not the it's not the same but it is like it's an existential question that hangs over the show the period of time and of course um contemporary politics in some way um and i i find so much of the conversations about the border uh as the show goes on relevant today um so one other i want to talk about lucien and kurt and barrio 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 uh not barrio barrio this barrio is Stalin's, mur- you know, murder chief. Uh, okay. Uh, Berio. Berio. Oh, yeah. Somebody sent me this on Twitter. That's like, oh, at the end. Um, yeah, the the French O-T is just pronounced like an O. Okay. So Berio uh, is, uh, continues. So, you know, Lucien has helped him out uh, in this way that he can't begin to fathom the cost. Like a piece of her has died. Um, from this experience with Heinrich, um, and you get really get the sense too that um, you know she is a uh, she's a, a good Catholic girl, like ways of you know probably naive in the ways of the world, and this thing happening to her is a devastating, um, and you can see that in her in the in the episode where it happens, um, but in the next episode she is. Um, you know, she's she's recovered somewhat and she is continuing this flirtation with Kurt. He offers to fix a radio. They're going to meet. Um, Barrio continues to pursue her um, and uh, romantically has her over for dinner. She makes two dates. She's, she goes to have dinner with him at 730 and then she's meeting Kurt at nine to, li- to help fix the radio. To listen to Bruckner. I, I just got to raise my voice in objection to the Bruckner thing. Yeah, it was all lost on me. Um, but but it was she goes to the dinner with Barrio, and he does this like sleight of hand thing, whatever, and produces a ring. And I was like, dude, you are like slow your roll. Uh, I just am. I am. You know, I I, I, uh, I had sort of forgotten um, how like he is. He is sweet in the sense that he is. Tr- you know. He clearly has strong feelings for her, and he um, is not like a dirtball exactly. But he he's is, not a dirtball. But he's not no. But he's but he's but he's not like he's like picking up no signs. Like he is sort of obtuse uh, to the fact that she doesn't really want any of this. Okay, I want to defend Berio on this because okay. I, I actually think this is an elegant portrayal of how two people can interpret the same events radically differently. Okay. So he likes her. He leaves her, let's leave aside the uh, less than modern workplace politics of this. Sure. He leaves her a sweet note um, in blocks. She does not appear unreceptive. So he... Uh, she uh, is unreceptive. Well, she she doesn't initially appear unreceptive. She responds positively to Kurt, but she doesn't respond negatively to him. She just doesn't respond. So he thinks she's shy and and maybe being coy. So he declares himself. She pushes him away, um, and he respects that. And he responds very appropriately and asks whether uh, whether basically whether he can try again. Um, and then he gets arrested and she moves heaven and earth to get him out. She comes to see him. She pounds the pavement 
and he does not have any idea how far she moves heaven and earth, but he knows she's lifted. She knows she's he's, he's she's gone way above and beyond the call of duty. And by the way, that she's the only she's the only one. So he interprets that as, oh my God, she's thought about my declaration, and she's been she's been moved, and this is her way of showing it. Um, so he then gallantly prepares a lovely dinner for her and uh, and tries again. Um, I think his interpretation, given the information at his disposal, he doesn't know anything about Kurt. He doesn't know she's been traumatized by what happened with Heinrich. I think his interpretation actually makes sense from his point of view. And I was totally unsympathetic to him last episode. Uh, But now I feel like, okay, like she didn't do anything wrong, but he really got the wrong message from a sacrifice that she made that's much greater than he knows and was not animated in any way by uh, romantic feelings for him. But I can totally see how he would get that wrong. So yeah. I was I was actually kind of sympathetic to him in this episode. So here's here's uh, I actually don't disagree with that interpretation. I think I just identify more with her in the sense that, you know, just like we saw a certain character um uh, a certain better character emerge from Schwartz. I think we see out of Lucien a kind of tenacity and a kind of um willingness to go to great lengths to help Bariat Barrio only because she believes him to be a decent human being and undeserving. Like she fears for him and it's the kind of and this is right the different like with Lorraine and it, it it sort of comes down to this in many ways, right? It comes down to, do you, do these people see the humanity in others and believe that what's happening is unjust and they're willing to interfere on their behalf in some way? And so you get a guy like Lorraine where when push comes to shove, he does not care if people die uh, and if he, if he doesn't help them. Whereas Lucienne very much cares if people, if someone's going to die, if she doesn't intervene. Um, and I think that there's a bit of a separating in these episodes between which kinds of people everyone is. Agreed. Uh, although and, she, ha- so I'm just saying I'm more. Well, I was going to say she has this other tragic flaw, though, which is that she does not understand that keeping your distance from the occupying. I mean, she, she's in a in a romantic way very much like Schwartz, who can't really keep his distance from von Ritter. She's like, you know, you don't need to date the German soldier thing. And that's like, that's going to end badly for her. That's true. Although when you compare, I mean, when I when I look at the options of these two suitors, I I guess I like totally see why she would choose Kurt. <laughs> over oh. over Barrio. Yeah, but this isn't freaking high school. You know, if she were if she came to you as a girlfriend and said, "I got some options here. I got the the older principal of the school I teach in, or I've got the hot young German soldier who by the way plays a mean violin, knows how to fix radios." Uh you would say, "Okay, girlfriend, um uh eventually by one means or another, the Germans are going to leave 
And we don't know how that's going to happen. We don't know when that's going to happen. But when that happens, the good Catholic girls who dated German soldiers are not going to be popular people among the uh, townsfolks here. There's going to be all kinds of nasty words for people like that. And uh, do you want is is that a good vision of your future? Yeah, uh, that is a that is a great point. Uh, it it doesn't change the fact that I was more on her side. Uh, I will I'll tell you these things can fluctuate, uh, but just in the, the cases of these discrete episodes, I was more on her side and sort of felt like, uh, and I remember feeling this way the first time too, kind of feeling like Barry Oat needed to needed. He to needs to calm down. Bit. Yeah, he needed needed to calm down a little bit. Um, Although but... I do want to say the be- ability to produce a ring and a ball of flame which he does, yeah. is cool. Sure. Uh, here's the <laughs> thing about rings. Here's the thing about rings. They are not first date. They're not first date appropriate. Uh, right? Like, I don't care how cool it is that you produce one to try to get somebody to take a ring. And it's not, it's not clear it's an engagement ring, but like rings are still like a big thing. And you don't just like produce one out of a candle and be like, will you, you know, be, 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 be mine here. Uh, without like a little more uh, indication on her part, I think. But you know, I just poor, just Lucienne is being constantly, you know, told. Here's the thing: just imagine being her. So here's my slight pushback on your point. Imagine being her. She's got this horrible. She's been had this horrible thing happen to her, a traumatizing event. She's got the principal of her school hitting on her relentlessly, and all she wants is the cute, forbidden German soldier. Like, like that's a, that sucks. That's, that's, yeah, I'm, I'm, and, and she, and she, uh, I think she was valiant in episode nine. So I, I, uh, I don't disagree with that. And look, if Berriot had done what he did knowing any of those things, it would be lecherous and contemptible. Right. But all he sure. knows is he gets caught within and is likely to be killed for having this gun and she moves heaven and earth to get him out. And the least he can do is make dinner and propose to her. (laughs) Okay. With that, uh, we're going to call it a week. We will be back next week to discuss the last two episodes of season one, 11 and 12. And I promise next week I will uh, razz uh, JVL a little more. I dropped the ball on that this week, and I'm sorry. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, Ben. We will talk to you guys next week. Edith, take us home. Et puis un jour, tu m'as quitté depuis je...